had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Hello, I'm Dr. Kathy Bear. Thank you for joining me for part two of Design Facilitate Whiteness Accountability Spaces in Your Organization how to develop effective white allies and change agents. Now, if you're with me at part one, you remember, and if not, you can go and check it out. We looked at why should organizations sponsor white accountability spaces for leaders and employees, and how do you work with leaders to get their support and buy-in, as well as to position these whiteness accountability spaces within the strategic plan, the goals of the organization. We also talked about the critical intentions and outcomes of these spaces and how do you start them, the goals, the purpose, lots of marketing. And then we began with, so when you bring people together, how do you start the conversation? I shared a lot of prompts and activities to build that authentic learning community in those first few sessions, including talking about socialization. Today in part two. I want to talk about more critical competencies that you want people to develop and deepen in these white accountability spaces, the knowledge, self-awareness, skills, capacity to create change. And then on the website of the radio show is a packet to download if you haven't already. We'll be looking at pages five to seven. I have two and a half pages of the scaffolded learning and skill development topics in the order that makes sense to me. But again, as I talked about in part one, you need to know who are the folks that have said they want to be there, who are coming, and be ready to pivot and redesign given how they actually show up. We'll also talk about critical design and facilitation skills that I believe co-conveners need to have and some of the predictable resistance and strategies to plan for it. I'm not doing a what do you do if, because I think there are 50 or 60 I'll mention but just to be aware of all the resistance and then just some common traps and pitfalls that can happen in white accountability spaces. If we have time, number of people send in more questions, so I've planned how to answer them because what we're doing is we're skilling up whites and people who are multiracial with white uh, heritage that want to look at racism, internalized dominance, racist attitudes that they might have absorbed growing up. How do we heal from that so we can truly partner with people of color to create racially just organizations. It is so imperative that we in the privileged identity really do our own self-work and healing work to recognize, disrupt the racist attitudes and behaviors that we might be perpetuating unknowingly and to unlearn those attitudes so that we really can show up as true colleagues and partners to create socially just, racially just, inclusive organizations. So you may have noticed, if you listen to part one, I'm intentionally using accountability spaces where the marketing and 
a month ago, I was even saying affinity. Here's why. I've been using them interchangeably, but I finally had enough, particularly folk of color, say no. Accountability is what you need to use, that in fact, affinity and caucuses have been used for decades for people in marginalized identity. In this case, it might be indigenous folks. Maybe there's a multiracial, biracial group. Maybe there's a monoracial people of color group or a group of all folk of color. And they're like, this is the language that we use, and there's a very different outcomes that we do because of our marginalized experiencing racism. And so use the term accountability. And I've played with it for about a year, and now I am committing. You may hear me make a mistake because it is hard to change, but I have been, gotten much better. So instead of caucuses affinity space, these spaces are intended to truly look at the skills and competences we need to keep accelerating and developing far deeper and showing up in the organization and our communities much clearer, demonstrating them and supporting other whites doing. It's about accountability with other whites, people that are multiracial, biracial, with whiteness as heritage. And that's another reason I'm calling them whiteness accountability space, even though it's jargony. So I say white or whiteness, I'll interchange. Because this isn't just about individual whites in their behavior, we're really looking at systems change. At the individual level, yes, attitudes and behavior change, but we're looking at the culture, the climate, how white privilege is embedded, trying to shift practices, policies, how white culture has been positioned as the only right way and how that's embedded into so many things. So it really is dismantling racism, white supremacy culture in organizations, and whites are a critical piece of that as are multiracial, biracial folks with white heritage. So that was my first challenge you to consider the term accountability spaces. Now, your organization may not be ready for that. They might use employee resource groups, and in part one, we talked about how to navigate some of the resistance, even trying to start a privileged group to develop allies. So I want to continue to talk about some of the critical competencies and possibly in what order. And again, the handout, the first few pages are what I focused on in part one, starting page seven and eight, sorry, five to seven uh, is what we'll be looking for. How do you scaffold and sequence with the flexibility to meet people where they are? And so one way to think about what do we need to do is my trifocals metaphor, which you may have been familiar with if you could listen to some others of these, that in fact, as co-conveners and the executive sponsor of these groups, we need to strategically think about three levels of competency development, individual, group, organizational. So three lenses, just like the trifocals I wear, have three lenses. And so at the individual level, and this is actually, I think, starting here makes sense, talked about it in part one, having people come together talking about their personal passions for wanting to create racial justice, inclusive organizations, dismantle racism, what's their vision of what's an inclusive, racially just organization, what's their experience in previous white spaces that have worked particularly well, mostly they'll be not so much, their fears and concerns about being in this group, in this organization with people they may work with, people who might be supervisors, people who they may know and don't have a really good relationship with yet, hopes for what could be different here. And then something, and I, again, in my handouts that you can get from my website and some of the freebies for this radio show, 
the current skill capacity level with desired skills. That's in the suggested competencies for white allies and change agents and some socialization. So we did all of that in part one, the individual level. Now, there's other individual levels, and I think starting here builds not only individual capacity, but group development helps them build a container for authentic sharing, bravery, not safety, but bravery, speaking truth. So another one is they could map out their current racialized experiences. So give everybody a chart piece, piece of paper, I think 8 by 11 is too small, markers and a chart paper, where they actually look at, so let's think about what are the demographic graphics and depth of dialogue. So not only by racial identity, who do I interact with, but what's my depth of dialogue around race and racism and white supremacy culture and microaggressions. So family, and that can be chosen family, family of growing up and current family, close friends, colleagues, you know, go out in concentric circles, acquaintances, how you spend your time in leisure, maybe recreational, social activities, religious, spiritual activities. So have them just really think about how they use their time and then who they interact with by race full breadth of marginalized, racialized identities, this level of mapping out could be an incredible self-awareness without judgment or blame, but just the, so you say you're committed now, let's see what your life is like outside of work, um, and possibly even in work could be another one. Who do you interact with in work? How much do you attend programs, conferences to learn about race and racism, whiteness, your role as a white change agent? How often you bring up issues of race at work, not sit back and expect folk of color to do that, indigenous folks. How often you recognize and interrupt racist dynamics and attitudes that are in our practices, policies, or a microaggression. The other piece of this is how often do you react out of defensiveness, some of those unproductive behaviors. And a great source, as you might know, is Dr. Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility book. A number of organizations are doing that as a book club. Um, my work is similar around the four F's, fight, flight, freeze, flounder. So they both complement each other and add some different variations. Um, while you're doing this mapping out, ask them how often they intentionally use a race lens to develop and revise and get a lot more people empowered and skilled to look at policies, programs, practices, and services. And how often do they engage in conflict and disagreement about race effectively. And so any and all of that can be, again, at the individual level, their own personal, how they're showing up, where they're learning, what they're doing demographically, who's around them. Um, another one could be how often do you engage with other whites to help all of us get smarter and better around these issues. Now, trifocals, that was the individual lens. The group lens can have a whole bunch of activities. And again, on pages five to seven, you'll see a lot of these. It could be what are your current racial biases and stereotypes? And we started that in socialization, but to really have people get honest about, huh, what, what did I learn then maybe and how do they maybe still impact white in general and maybe me today? That Harvard implicit bias test can be a great way to get people as homework in between uh, to just get some awareness about what might be possible. Most folks think they're way beyond this. And what I realize is the more aware I get, the more I realize that daily I have racist thoughts still. And it's 
I believe growth is recognizing them, acknowledging to myself in whiteness spaces like this, accountability spaces, being able to get honest, and then learning how to shift them in the moment and uh, over time dissolve them so we don't even actually have them. Helping people find these implicit biases, and one way to do that is really what are the common racist interpersonal microaggressions that happen. You can get a whole bunch of data from your organization, the community, use my materials, get online to find others, just have people tell you what they've experienced and seen as white people and multiracial folks. And then what's the impact of these? And then what are the biases fueling them? So it's still at the group level. If somebody, a white person, interrupts and shuts down two people of color that are trying to offer new ideas, What's the bias in that? The way we've done it, that's always worked. You all just need to come in here and learn how we do it here in this white cultural organization. And again, these aren't necessarily conscious ideas. Whites know more, people of color deficit. So identifying those racist biases at the group level can help people have a little distance between, oh, yeah, these are pretty common. And then the next question is, how many of these you still you see yourself tripping over and being fueled by. That leads into the whole competency bucket of recognizing and shifting these racist attitudes, white supremacist attitudes, which some people call internalized dominance. Now, let me pause. I'm using the term white supremacist attitudes, and some of y'all might be bristling. If you're like me, I thought, quote, white supremacists were the KKK, and today the folks that marched in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the folks that are still doing terrorist activities, um, it seems like almost weekly we hear about them in this country. Yes. And we all, I believe, as white folks and possibly multiracial, biracial folks, have similar attitudes of white is right and the white culture and professional and leadership and how you're supposed to engage. And if you want a resource, uh, Tema Oaken, O-K-U-N, Tema, T-E-M-A, and Kenneth Jones have a wonderful piece. They use Google white supremacy culture and they bring it into the workplace. And so it's a way that has normalized, I think, that language to say it's not just fringe folks, but actually daily practices and perpetuate whites into privilege and the way whites think is the right way is the only right way and create barriers for really true high-performing teams. So having people at the group level look at the common racist behaviors and attitudes, you can get that handout on my website. It's one of the freebies I'm offering to really look at which ones of these do you still see whites doing, sharing, relating in, ooh, which ones have you ever been fueled by or still hold on to? Is there an example you can tell? At the Social Justice Training Institute, these white caucuses are embedded about on day three. So by then, and folks volunteer and are coming and often on their in their organizations are some of the folks doing racial justice work. So they come in at a different place, but that first morning, early afternoon, on day three, we're having them really get honest about here are the racist attitudes that just last week, here's something I did, and this is what was fueling it. And that level of going deeper, getting authentic, relating in who sees themselves in each other, that for me is when a group can really start to do the deeper healing work. If you're looking at scaffolding, 
you have a 16-week program, say this may not be till week seven or eight, and yet you can get there. And then it's identifying these racist thoughts and biases. How do you shift them in the moment? How do you dissolve them over time? And that's going to take a lot of work in the whiteness accountability space to keep doing. What can I do if, when this happens, instead of thinking X, how can I shift it before I take action? This ongoing practice. I actually think, you know, from maybe four, five, six on sessions, having people bring in some scenarios or using some of the microaggressions once you've done that work, what could you do if every session start with two or three of those? What could be the racist attitudes fueling this? When you're about to intervene, what are your thoughts, your fears? What are five possible ways to respond? And get on my website some of the tools and strategies of asking questions, relating in, interrupting, sharing, self-disclosing, noticing the dynamic. And so having people really practice those skills. Now, let me give you a trap. Most whites that I know want to start here. They may not want to do the earlier work I've been talking about in part one, even through now. They want to jump in. Just tell me what to do. If this happens, what should I do so I can show up effective, i.e. a good white person? And I believe that until we whites have started to do our own personal work, looking at our racist attitudes and behaviors, we will show up actually perpetuating whiteness and have a negative impact on people of color again because we may come in out of a gotcha I'm the good white. Let me show you how good I am. The white savior coming in. And so how we show up actually perpetuates whiteness, which actually is some of the greatest concerns, I think, and fears of folks of color when they hear white people are going to get together. How are they going to learn and shift if they're just perpetuating it all the time? And so you may get honest with the group you pull together to say, we're not going to start here. We're going to start doing our own self-work. You know, by session five, six, seven, we might be able to begin to think about what could we do, but we will be different by then, and then we're going to keep perpetuating uh, or perpetually looking at what could I do with skills and deepening our capacity. You also want at the group level to have people eventually move out of the moment and think, how do we minimize these racist comments and behaviors in our team? So that we're really creating racially inclusive, high-performing teams. How do we minimize them in our policies and practices? And I'll get to that in a minute. But having people really think through on whether it's hiring committees, whether it's um, day-to-day interactions with customers, how do we help people minimize those and then, again, be skilled up to intervene when you hear them? And not, again, the gotcha cancel culture. I'm right, you're wrong, you're a racist, but how do you meet people where they are to help them learn and grow so they may not engage in those racist behaviors in the future and they learn why it has that negative impact. A couple more at the group level, having people look at the concept of hot buttons and triggers that are common among folks that are white and people in the multiracial who have whiteness as part of their heritage. When they personally feel triggered, so you kind of bump it back to the individual level how they react out of white fragility, especially if um, somebody says something racist or confronts them about a behavior that they experienced as negative racist impact. How do you navigate your own triggered reactions so you're more centered and grounded and when others are having a hot button and are kind of out of their bodies or reacting, fight, flight, freeze, flounder, how do you engage in a way to promote learning and organizational change? 
Again, all these tools and skills, my first book, Turn the Tide, is all about navigating difficult situations. And if you wanted to learn more about the course around designing facilitation or navigating difficult situations, just go to my website, drkathyabair.com backslash events, and all my courses and some free webinars are listed there. Now, as you keep moving, again, we're way into probably 10 and 12 sessions now. But to help people, in addition to the microaggressions that are more, quote, obvious, what are the coded racist messages that happen, say, in hiring? Oh, they're not a good fit. They'll never stay. Hmm, their school they went to, I don't know. Or there was a spelling error in their cover letter. These are ones I hear over and over as I work with people in organizations. Understanding then lots more about white fragility and how it can show up and what to do when it does in you. And then white privilege. Some people start here, and I think it's a trap, because folks that are still in denial, and if you haven't done the work before now, you'll get such resistance, people will leave. But by now, people might be able to talk about, so conceptually, whether it's um, McIntosh, Dr. Peggy McIntosh's work, or other folks that have written about white privilege, what are some examples you've seen, what do you realize you've experienced, and how did you get advantage because of white privilege? How are they embedded in our meetings and daily practices, hiring, promotion, discipline, training and development? And really skill people up for recognizing what could I do if. Some of that has to really work with um, just realizing, as I have, and it was a hard moment for me, that I've gotten where I've gotten in my life. Yes, hard work. But so much of my life has been advanced because of the white privilege I've experienced, in addition to class privilege, education privilege, but particularly white privilege uh, in this work. And it's humbling to not buy into that classist belief that you pull up your bootstraps and get as far as you want. And actually, I was on a moving walkway, as Dr. Beverly Tatum talks about, while most folks, some whites um, who are probably grew up in poverty. They still got white privilege, but their moving walkway was not as fast as mine because I had class privilege as well. And I got pushed way farther ahead, and other folks are trying to run along and keep up but still can't get it. A couple more things at the group level. What are the unproductive behaviors of white allies? Trying to be the best, find the racist in the room, critiquing with no solutions. How can we learn without people of color? Well, I just want to hang out with them. And then productive behaviors of white change agents. Uh, and my suggested competencies for white allies and change agents is a good place to start. There are 96 behaviors there that I think could be useful. Eventually, moving towards the third level, organizational level, practices, policies that have a racist impact. Again, most of this is unintended. Yes, they were created by whites, probably unintentionally perpetuate whiteness, white culture. And now we can look to say, wow, how does that create privilege? How does it create barriers and obstacles? Put people of color in this box where they have to, quote, act white or do it only one way. How is white culture embedded? And again, the Kenneth Jones and Tema Oaken's work, white supremacy culture is great. And then how do we look at policies, programs, and recruiting, hiring, supervision, coaching, team development, professional development, career planning, all of these teach people how to map them out, find the potential for how whiteness, white culture, racist attitudes could be influencing, and what could we do to shift proactively, reactively revising, and planning. 
doing all that within the whiteness accountability culture, uh, whiteness accountability spaces, could be great skill development. And then maybe whites could be ready to then partner with people of color to maybe share what they're doing in the accountability space. Maybe you have a people of color affinity space that may want to come together. But I would not bring groups together, first, unless the folks of color want to come together, and second, um, unless the whites have gotten through the trifocals and have the capacity to analyze programs, policy, services. If not, when we come together, we'll just be reinforcing microaggressions, the pain, the emotional labor. That's my best thinking. Before we go to break, I want to remind you on the website for Transformation Change Radio are incredible free resources. Not only my book, but I'm not racist, but also, again, my website, backslash race book. Lots of supplemental resources, including all the ones I've talked about, plus a book club guide for my book, but I'm not racist, tools for women and whites. There's a recent webinar I did, Recognizing Interrupting Racism in Your Organization could be a great place for the initial co-conveners and maybe the initial five or ten that really think it's a great idea to watch and think about how do we want to start a whiteness accountability space. And then again, if you want to keep deepening your capacity, particularly as co-conveners, I have a mini course that I started last Friday, but there's still two weeks left, March 6th and March 13th, leading white accountability spaces. You'll be with a group of about 50 people that are in the course. I've recorded everything. There's homework, even more resources and live with me to kind of what would you do if and how could you, and there'll be a bonus call too. And again, my two courses, Navigating Difficult Situations, are key competencies for co-conveners. And if you're listening to this thinking, how can anybody we have already co-convene, my course, Designing, Facilitating Workshops and Equity, Inclusion, Social Justice, could be a great foundational place for folks to come together, three or four or ten to really develop some competencies in general that will help them also do white accountability spaces. Why don't we take a break here for a couple minutes and breathe deeply, take it all in, and I will be back. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. We remember a time when you could simply form a thought and it would manifest. The harmony was forgotten, but it is returning now. The power of inspiration and awakening radio with Juliet Griffin on TransformationTalkRadio.com each second and fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll take you on adventures through the heart and spirit exploring who we once were. This intuitive healer studied under the guidance of wolves, learning from their wisdom to master a higher frequency for a new state of mind. Visit OneTrueSelf.com. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. 
For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, and this is part two, designing and facilitating white accountability spaces, really deepening the capacity of whites and folks with white skin privilege who are multiracial, biracial, and want to do their own development around that part of them to come together and how can we partner with people of color to really create racial justice in our organizations. So what I want to talk about next is what are some different content activities based on the current capacity of participants. Because as I mentioned on the handout, pages five to seven is a lot of possibilities. But if you have a lot of whites showing up in denial, i.e. there's really not racism much anymore or post-racial, um, I'm a good one, then you may want to, in addition to what I've talked about, at that, especially at that individual and group level, the activities, do a few more. And I use this conceptual frame called path to competence developed by doctors Jack Gant and Delight Frost of LCY Cross Associates. I had the honor to work with them about 20 years ago. And denial is when, not you know, you get that there's race, but really racism is a thing of the past, and there's really not white privilege. So one way that might help whites understand more could be do some history of race and racism and current-day manifestations. So not only maybe a racism timeline in your region, the state you're in, or the province, and then the world if it impacts your footprint uh, or your customers. And have people do some research and bring some, and then co-conveners maybe do a lot more. Just really talking about what has happened before that brings us to this current day. And then the manifestations today, examples would be really powerful. Now, some folks will still bat them away but you might get some folks to loosen up a bit and go, wow, I didn't know. Now, are there some places you can do field trips in your area? I'm organizing a group of folks a couple weeks to go down to the Legacy Museum down in Montgomery, Alabama, Alabama, the Equal Justice Initiative and then the memorial to lynching. So we're going to that. Now, that's people from all over. I think they're just U.S. folks. 
But you can, are there museums or are you close enough to drive the African-American Museum in D.C. or I believe there's a tolerance anti-bias one in L.A. So taking people to a museum could be useful. And clearly more knowledge and statistics about current day race dynamics and disparities. So what is your field? Is it healthcare? So there's so much data about disparities by race. Employment, housing, your educational system, legal, policing, prison system, military. So corporate, there's all kinds of data that shows whether it's recruiting, hiring, promotion, microaggression, uh, the climate and the culture. Just get some more data and again, send people out to do some research, some of their peer institutions. And, and so you don't have to do it all as co-conveners, but have them come back and share some of what they're finding. Now, some people may bring back uh, some material that actually is perpetrated by some more right-wing white supremacist groups. So that'll give you a lot of data where people are. But to be honest, I'm not sure folks who seek out and believe some of that information are going to come to a whiteness accountability space. But I could be wrong. Videos and movies, you can either work, uh, watch them together, give them as homework in between, have them choose one from a list of 20 or another one, and then come and share insights. The movie Just Mercy is coming out. That's related to the work of Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative. That's coming out, I believe, March 10th into video and on cable. Uh, so that's just the one I, I'm planning to buy and watch. And then, again, examples of interpersonal racism. Just because you talked about microaggressions first and once doesn't mean they got it. So continue to get more, maybe do some focus groups, the climate survey, CSHR from CEO work can give you some themes and issues. Just what are some of the organizational racist dynamics? Uh, another way to enter them is maybe talk about their families. Someone suggested that people whites can resist by only talking about their families. But if you meet people where they are, ask them historically or now, what are some of the, you know, when you get together for major holidays, whatever those might be, what are some comments and behaviors that one or two of your family or friends might have done? And so anything to break the belief that it's just isolated incident really doesn't happen anymore, that actually is very pervasive and we're just not seeing it. So the box of fear that's when whites and people with white skin privilege get that there's racism, but they don't have much capacity. They've got more increased awareness, but low skill to intervene. And so they're often stuck in fear, guilt, and shame. And so clearly having them talk about what are some of their fears so they don't feel alone, people relating in, and then challenge us not to get stuck there. But it's really skill development. So have them be looking at the handout suggested competencies, identify what are the skills you want to develop, and then practice at the interpersonal level. What could you do if? Look at those case studies, scenarios, the racist microaggressions, and really have them in small groups and large groups talking about it and doing demonstrations where they find really good strategies and what else could we do. Also, unproductive white ally behaviors that can happen in our group and what could you do if here or you're outside of this group when someone tries to be the white savior or tries to come in and teach whites all the things, you know, I know it all and better than you. And one other thing when people who are kind of in that box of fear, help them really share progress. And so literally every time you start another session, have people say, so what have you been noticing? And in those moments, what did you think to, to do? What did you want to do? And then what did you try? And then what was the impact? You notice I'm scaffolding. And uh, what could you do next time? 
and then rehearse that so that people can get progress if they just thought and thought to do something but still scare themselves and then ask the group, well, who could have done what in those moments? And not shame, blame, but always skill development. And then clearly when you're in the box of fear practicing, list the policies, programs, services, analyzing whose needs are met, how are whites advantaged, whose needs might not be met, the barriers and obstacles to people of color, indigenous folk, how could white privilege be embedded. Uh, you can use my tool, the white supremacy culture card. It's based on Kenneth Jones and Tema Oaken's work. I, Kenneth has passed. Tema is still with us, thank goodness. Uh, and I asked her if I could use their material to develop these cards. And I'm so grateful she agreed. So there are all kinds of resources you can have people use real time to revise policies, practice to be more racially just and inclusive and to minimize the negative impact. Now, the question is, what are some of the skills and competencies that are needed if, in fact, people are needing to um, be the co-conveners? So the last couple pages in the packet that I put up on the website, pages 8 and 9, I have a long list of design and facilitation skills that I teach to in my course, Design and Facilitation, Powerful Workshops and Echo Inclusion. Uh, and I pulled out some of those. Actually, I think they're all critical, but some I just want to highlight. Design skills on pages 8 to 9 really have to learn how do you assess learning needs in the moment and before. Conceptual models for designing, like the experiential learning cycle, and for sure the Tuckman group development, which you may be familiar with, uh, forming, norming, storming, maybe norming again, performing, adjourning. I use a number of these models as I'm sequencing and scaffolding, knowing different people's learning styles so that you are really using different ways of engaging so that it gives most people a chance to show up and learn and to help teach others. Scaffolding from foundational, more complex, from lower risk to medium risk to higher risk and being able to move in the moment if people are triggered is a key skill. You really have to have a deep toolkit of activities and teaching methods, learning methods together so that you can design activities that are accessible to folks with different disability needs, different language needs, and to really look at the intersection of race, sex assigned at birth, gender identity, uh, position level. And then how do you develop meaningful handouts? Now, you're welcome to use any and all of mine, and then if people put things on the website of their own, you know, just kind of look at them and see how they're useful. But those are all some of the design skills I think are critical. The facilitation skills, 9 to 13, I just really want you to look at that handout and self-assess because it's not presentation. Facilitation is not teaching, lecturing, even training that are more giving information as I'm doing here in this educational format. It's how do you create a learning community? How do you engage folks? How do you facilitate deeper dialogue, authenticity, connecting, empathy, relating in? How do you meet people where they are and help them move, but without that judgment? How to use your own stories and honest, uh, authentic examples in the moment to show the depth that is possible of what people could be sharing? Um, how do you get over your own fear? And then just managing the group dynamics, who's in, who's out, who's playing the let's find the racist in the room, unproductive dynamics, interrupting not listening, dominate. I mean, all those good facilitation 
and particularly ones about how to deal with when whites cry. Is it genuinely emoting that they can continue to talk while they cry, at least that's what I do, or are they trying to use crying to distract or demand attention uh, and go into some of that white fragility defensiveness? So a couple other facilitation tools. How do you deal with folks that are so stuck in guilt and shame that they're just swirling? I could keep going, but there are so many facilitation tools and skills in addition to uh, design ones that are critical. Now, I don't want you to scare yourself, but I also don't want you to think that you can just go out and do it because you listen to this radio show. It takes at least a moderate to moderate to high capacity of design and facilitation around race racism, plus lots of knowledge and skills. You have to know about race and racism What is white supremacy then and now? Enough history to position where we are, enough understanding the current dynamics of how racism and white supremacy is so much more mainstream by the media and so many of our leaders and supporters of those leaders. Understanding the breadth of the microaggression and the dynamics in organizations and in other institutions that perpetuates racism and whiteness and white privilege. All of that. And you have to have done your self-work around your own internalized dominance, racist attitudes, behaviors, then and now. Have the courage to share that and have enough examples and stories that you can, again, help model. And that you have to yourself have to move through significant shame, guilt, and your own resistance so that you're a willing learner. And when you notice shame, when you notice you're triggered in those moments, you notice you're feeling guilt or any resistance, you can name it in the moment and say, I just noticed when you shared that, this came up in me. I wonder if anybody else relates. So help me think this through. Help me be different. That's the environment. It's not co-conveners coming in. Let us teach you. That's just perpetuating privilege and dominance. It's we just volunteered, and we are committed to being, having a, maybe some more knowledge and skills, but maybe not. But we're, we've committed to continuing our deep healing work and to seek out feedback, and to support others. So the question might be, well, how do you support conveners and facilitators? Because a lot of folks don't have these skills. Um, And so finding ways they get ongoing development, maybe ongoing coaching, and that might be with a regional group of conveners of privileged group identity, so it doesn't necessarily all have to be around whites and whiteness. Uh, Have space for them to be brief and planned, that's a part of their work life. And to do that, it has to be a part of their performance review and expectations for their job. And other responsibilities, maybe 10%, it might be moved to other folks. So this isn't just a nice thing to do, but it's seen as service and contribution to the organization that helps the whole organization move forward. And you may want to think about the conferences in the region nationally that can help them keep learning and growing. I know I go to the White Privilege Conference and to NCOR, National Conference on Race and Ethnicity. So the question about resistance, there are so many. And if people, again, are in denial, it can sound like tone policing. If people of color would only, they're just so aggressive, they're so sensitive. Um, Being stuck at that individual level they, they're racist, too. They're playing the race card. There's microaggressions against whites, too. We're post-racial. Um, things are so much better now. What's the big deal? I'm a good one. I'm not racist. I could, oh, so many. The perfect logical explanation. That had nothing to do with race. My best friend is black. 
context of credentialing. I adopted Latinx orphans. I'm married to an Asian American. I'm part Native American. Now, let me pause. Folks that actually have Native American ancestry and are exploring that, looking at it, understanding the genocide and current dynamics of genocide and racism, that's different than what happens very often in my workshops when I really am pushing whites to look at whiteness and white privilege. They're like, yeah, but I... I can't be right. I don't know. I have part, my great, great grandmother, that kind of thing. It's a very different framing. Um, this is making it worse. You're segregating us. It actually is creating more racism. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. I treat everybody the same. We're a human race. That's the only race there is. So any of these are indicators of folks who are stuck at the individual level in denial, and you might need to slow down and explore it. Others, the oppression Olympics, deflecting to marginalized identities. I remember doing this. I can't be racist. I am. I'm a lesbian. Um, or people saying, you know, classes is the most important. I grew up poor. I didn't have any privilege. I don't have any white privilege. So when people are in pain in their marginalized identities with people who are white or multiracial with white heritage, it is hard to own white privilege and explore some of the issues of whiteness and internalized dominance. So just some indicators of resistance. And if you don't like that word, it could be you've moved to a place where people are telling you they need something else right now, exploring, engaging it, and maybe a different conversation. Uh, I'm not saying to stop what you're doing, but there might be conversations outside of the white accountability space or in it that could help people relate in and then what helps you shift. Um, things have swung too far. Now whites are discriminated against. You can't say anything, joke at all. How can we learn as whites without people of color in the room? But also when people are in the box of fear where they know more, but they're still unskilled, this is where I see whites really uh, swirl in shame and guilt and shut down and stay there. And it's one thing to acknowledge it and it's another to swirl. And I have to say I've also seen some whites use it as a deflection in my opinion where all they do is talk about how ashamed I am and how guilty I am and I'm just this horrible white person. I'm like, yeah, no. Name it once, and then let's get to exploring what you do that perpetuates race dynamics and shifts those as opposed to used as a defense. Another resistance that I see in white groups is we can't do anything right. Damned if we do, damned if we don't. What do they want? Nothing will please them. Anything could be enough for them. Again, we're focusing on folk of color as opposed to what have I done, what do we do, and how do we shift that? Conceptualizing, staying intellectual is another clear defense that can happen and resistance can happen many places and just perpetuate whiteness. Um, others could be critiquing other whites. I'm the good one. Everyone else is so more racist. I already talked about I'm so bad, I'm a horrible person and staying stuck there at the box of judgment. Uh, and then the box of engagement where we are more competent can still sound like I know all I need to know. I've arrived. I don't need a white accountability space. I took a graduate course. <laughs> so there's resistance internally in an organizational accountability space at all times. Now, the whole organization might be a whole bunch of resistance before you even start it as well as as you're doing it. And as I mentioned in part one, folks of color, if they're not skeptical, I would be a little bit wondering why. And the deep lack of trust and skepticism can be engaged as you partner, as you create 
the goals and marketing for the space, as well as really advertise and market very well what your intentions are. And that was all part one. Um, the concern from folk of color and some whites, we're going to perpetuate whiteness. People are going to show up, intellectual, conceptual, perpetuate the white savior. Um, are they only attending to get a gold star? These are some of the resistance that some colleagues shared with me. Whites in the organization may be, it's not only white people that are racist. Um, we can't learn anything with just white people. This perpetuates segregation, makes things worse. Um, I don't work with people of color. It's not my job. Racism isn't an issue here. The people of color I know are happy. I just had to breathe when I heard that one. We already spend too much time on this. I'm busy. We have to focus on the quality of our work. This is distracting us. Uh, I, yeah. I could keep going, but just kind of breathe. What's critical is that if you hear people starting to say, this is going to make us look bad. What if it gets in the news? It's going to hurt our recruiting. It's going to hurt shareholders. Uh, it's going to hurt us generating money from donors. Whatever, your, whatever you all do, pull together a group of leaders and sponsors, HR, accountability conveners, maybe the People of color affinity group, employee resource group, if they're willing to, trainers on race and dismantling racism in the community as well as in your organization. Identify the possible resistance, what you've already heard, what you anticipate, and discuss how can we individually and organizationally prepare for and respond. It's going to take marketing communications if you get start to get hate and racist um, social media coming at you. Be prepared for that at the individual level as co-conveners, but also at the group level. And what structures do we need to put in place now that can help us respond quickly? Now, you're not going to be prepared for everything, but you can talk it through and be prepared for more. So in our last few minutes, I just really want to talk about what are some traps you can fall into. Co-conveners, the more you're aware, you can prepare for them. And so in your engagement agreements, in part one we talked about getting people to co-create those. Use my common list of common racist behaviors and maybe pull out 10 of the unproductive ways that whites can show up in accountability groups, shaming and judging, kind of social justice arrogance, competing to be the best white, critiquing the process, critiquing conveners, thinking there's only one right way, or giving unsolicited advice. Or my favorite, find the racist in the room and then pile on, as opposed to connecting, outing history and research, thinking that's good enough and avoiding self-work. So you could listen to these two Radio shows, look at my materials, put together a page of 10 possible unproductive white ally behaviors and discuss how can we avoid these and when they come up, how can we engage them and as co-conveners really be very clear how you want to engage uh, when and if they come up. So take a deep breath. Ah, the question of when and if they come together, and I spoke earlier about I would wait, you know, stay connected with the colleagues of color who will be willing to be accountability colleagues and or partner if they're doing affinity or employee resource groups. Keep up to date sharing what you're doing and say you may not ever want to, and we are open to that at any point. And so I believe that you should wait until the folks of color say, you know what, we've had some questions about what y'all are doing. And we are willing to show up and come together. And so then have a collective conversation as co-conveners say, well, what would you like to have that happen and have the folks of color take the lead? 
of the activities, conversation prompts, or the outcomes. So a couple quick ideas could be fishbowl have come in and the folks that are in the white accountability space share what you're learning and insight, what we're seeing now that we didn't see before, what we're personally doing differently in our work environments that we didn't do before, and what are the outcomes and impacts we're seeing, and the skills that we want to develop and the courage, what we're committed to keep doing. Policies and practices could be a way. Then you might have the folks of color react. And if folks are willing, then you could put people either in, again, same um, folks of color white group to list all the policies and practices. But that could be a time to pull people together to look at what are the policies and practices, list them all that need to be revised and maybe begin to do some. So there is collective, you know, maybe groups of six or seven mixed by race privileged, marginalized. And so that could be, if the folks of color are feeling it, could be a way these two groups could be really value-added to the organization, begin to realize, oh, we can work together, but realize not until the whites do our work so we show up more effective and not continue to create harm. I have heard way too many stories of ineffective accountability spaces where it's just spiraled out of control, fun, without being useful, nasal gazing is what someone described them as, um, people using their own personal agenda. It is critical that we have clear intentions grounded in the current capacity, the desired state within what the organization needs to move forward to be more inclusive. You're partnering with colleagues of color and the leaders of the organization, and you're doing regular check-ins with the group to say, what are your needs, using the handouts I have and others, and evolve as the group evolves so that more people get the capacity to truly, as white and people with white skin privilege, partner to create racially inclusive organizations, dismantle racism in the moment and in our policies and practices. I hope you join me Monday, August, sorry, April 6th, Monday, April 6th. I'm going to continue talking about how do you develop internal capacity, capacity from a different angle, creating inclusion partners programs, which is related to what we're talking about, but could get people in every department skilled up around racial justice and other skills around social justice. And please, all the freebies, my book, the resources, the webinar, as well as you can join the mini course still and navigating difficult situations, designing workshops. Just go to my website, drkathyberry.com backslash events, E-V-E-N-T-S. And I really hope you continue to Join me and others to deepen your capacity to create truly equitable, inclusive organizations around, in this case, racism, and learn from this and apply it to all other kinds of difference and oppression in the organization. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with Transformation and Change Radio, and I look forward to seeing you next month, April 6th, looking at how do you accelerate organizational change, create an inclusion partners program. Till then, hope you have a great month. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.